Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Welcome back to another episode of Hands in Motion. On this episode, we are joined by Jill Yannick to discuss a variety of tools that you might have in your toolbox or you might be interested in adding. We discuss utilizing cupping, instrument-assisted soft tissue mobilization. We have an intro to blood flow restriction for the upper extremity, dry needling, and taping. Jill offers us some great thoughts on how these tools can be an adjunct in your clinical practice. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Jill. So, hey, everyone, how are you doing? We're back today with Jill, and Jill is going to give us some insight on some current trends in treatment in hand therapy. Jill, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure, no problem. So I am an OTCHT. I work at a privately owned outpatient practice in Maryland. It's probably about 30 minutes or so south of DC. In addition to treating patients, I also oversee our student and our in-house mentoring program. And I also serve on ASHT's education division. Great. So just to get started, just give us an overview of some of the current trends in treatment that you are doing. Some of those newer trends that it's the kind of new buzzword in treatment. What are some of those things? Yeah. So, you know, I'm always looking for what are some of those, those new tools for the toolbox. And so some of the things that I'm hearing a lot more about is seeing a lot more buzz about instrument assisted soft tissue work we kind of started seeing it initially coming out a while back and we associated with certain brand specific names, but definitely seeing more upper extremity specific research coursework and resources for hand and upper extremity therapists. Also seeing dry needling kind of starting to pick up some speed in terms of people talking about it more There are some states recently that have been establishing guidelines for occupational therapists to be able to utilize it. Also, blood flow restriction training, which is something that I have personally been using and feel really excited about. It was something that kind of first came about with working out with the athlete, but we're starting to see how it can really be beneficial in the kind of therapy environment. And then seeing the idea of using athletic or flexible taping beyond kind of what we originally knew it for. So kind of using it outside of the box. I know I had mentioned just about cupping as well, although we don't think of that little yellow box that most people OT clinics have as cupping, but I've been using that a lot, you know, for some scar adhesions on hand and forearm. So, and I've been getting some great results with that. So that's another one that, that might be thrown into that toolbox as well. Yeah, that is a great one. I have that in my clinic. It It's so versatile because it takes up so little space. It's relatively inexpensive and the different sized 
cups per se can be used and you can really target those small incisions on the hands. So I really like it when you have those incisions across like the dorsal finger where the skin is thin, but that's not a whole lot of width. So you might not get kind of the more traditional cupping tools that you see that we kind of have seen on, you know, in the Olympics or kind of in the news. I love that tool for that area. I know exactly what you're talking about, but some of our listeners might not. Can you describe or tell us what that little yellow box is and how you utilize it a little bit more with with your patients? Yeah, absolutely. So mine is actually called a venom extraction kit. It was in my clinic when I started working here 13 years ago. So, I mean, it's probably dated a little bit. I think it's called the extractor, but basically it looks like a very large syringe that you can place small cups at the end. There's different sizes. Some are circular, some are oval shaped. And then what you do is you press the plunger down. And as you press the plunger down, it eventually at the bottom kind of clicks. And when that happens, you create the cupping or the suction action, and it will lift that skin and that kind of superficial layer of fascia up. And it helps to, I use it personally to reduce those kind of stubborn adhesions that you really often can feel with your hands and know that they're present, you know, those scars that feel sticky underneath your hands, you start mobilizing the skin and you really see that the scar is not moving and you can apply that to the skin for anywhere between a few seconds, sometimes upwards, I'll go up to maybe 10 or 15 seconds, just patient comfort mostly. What I personally like about it is you can also customize the amount of suction that is on the skin so that you can really make sure you're customizing it to your patient's tolerance. Mm-hmm. There are times too, I'll, I'll kind of slide it back and forth. I'll usually put just lotion or cocoa butter on the skin before I put it on and then be able to slide that back and forth. Again, depending upon the comfort level and where it is, sometimes it's not super comfortable for the patient, but I've seen some really, really good results lately just with you know, the tendons just gliding much better, even after you do that, that treatment technique on the patient, they kind of get a little nervous when you break out the extractor. (laughs) They're like, what is that? (laughs) I know. It's like, why did they have to name it that? Um, (laughs) And one other way that I've used it as well, in addition, I do the mobilization also because it's so easy to do with the lotion. But also if a patient's really tolerating it well, I'll ask them to do some tendon gliding while the cupping is on the patient so that you're kind of creating that kind of fascial or that skin lifting and then asking the patient to then mobilize the tendon and it can help to actively free the tendon from Mm -hmm. those adhesions. Yeah. I just had a flexor tendon repair and they were kind of adhered and did amazingly well with using that technique. And he was like, no, that thing works, put that thing on me and let's go. You know, (laughs) So it was just a really successful intervention for me. Do you have patients walk out of your clinic? I know when it was maybe the first athlete we were seeing with these big kind of whelps on his back when Michael Phelps was in the Olympics. (laughs) Do you have patients walk out with little ones on their hand 
or is that not the reaction you're seeing you're getting? <laughs> I feel like with the way that I'm utilizing it and with that extractor tool, the amount of kind of suction that you're creating is not as severe or as, you know, not as deep. I think when we look at Michael Phelps, he's, they're utilizing cupping to really tackle myofascial adhesions and things like that. So you will see more of that blood pulling from that type of cupping. Whereas when I'm doing it for scar adhesions, it's more of a mild light lifting of the skin and some of that initial subdermal fascia off of the tendons or the, the mobile structures that I'm trying to kind of get moving. Sometimes we do get some redness, but not quite to the extent that we've seen (laughs) in those Olympics. (laughs) I have a tendency if I use it on the forearm, like where the skin is thinner, I get that purpling of the skin, but usually not on the hand. It sucks it up. Like there's a big welt on there, but it's not like you don't get that discoloration. It usually goes away fairly quickly. My patients rarely come back for their follow-up visit with any type of welts or, or signs that, you know, that they're still getting that coagulation at the surface. Yeah. That reaction. So you also mentioned instrument assisted, I guess, moving to a different instrument, but instrument (laughs) assisted soft tissue mobilization. How do you utilize that in your practice? And have you found any just fun tools outside of the commercially available ones that you use with your patients? Yeah, no, I've got really excited when I started seeing companies making tools that were smaller in size and had really nice curvature. And we saw them, they were generally a lot larger. So kind of this big bike handle looking tool or the one that kind of looked like a boomerang. And I was really kind of wondering how I could use those when we talked about things like working kind of into the hand. So super excited to see these smaller size tools. So I'll go ahead and give a little plug out there for Amazon. There's definitely some great (laughs) options out there. And I had a patient gift me a set of four small tools and they are fantastic. I have one that kind of looks like a shark's tooth and one that's really almost looks like a curved tongue depressor. And so those little angles work really great to kind of get in those kind of tighter spaces in the hand in regards to kind of what products I'm, I'm liking out there. I took a, my first instrument assisted soft tissue course specific to the hand and upper extremity and left super excited. And I also got a tool out of that one that I really like a lot as well. So in terms of tools, I say there's so many options out there that, you know, you really you can go online and and really think about what might work best for you, what you think will really kind of get into the areas that you want to target. So what is in the hand specifically, what are you, or how are you utilizing this? What is the basis for utilizing instrument assisted soft tissue mobilization? That's a a great question because we kind of, you know, see us just kind of taking the tool and, 
running it over the surface of the hand or the arm. But I always, and if you've ever spent a few minutes with me, you always hear me say, let's take it down to the anatomy. So instrument assisted soft tissue mobilization can really help a variety of different structures, including muscles, fascia, remember, so fascia is that connective tissue that kind of surrounds the muscles, ligaments, tendons, and also scar tissue. So if any of those soft tissue structures, if I feel like there is something going on with those tissues that they need some sort of assistance, they are tight, they are adhered, and either my hands aren't doing the trick or my hands are tired, I think that's something else that as hand and upper extremity therapists, we need to really recognize is, you know, we need to save our hands. (laughs) I mean, I don't think we're all eager to have CMC arthroplasty someday. So using these instruments really do help to just protect, you know, our joints as well. And so in the hand, we have pretty much all of those structures, right? So we've got the muscles, we have the intrinsic muscles. So some tools, you can really get into those smaller structures. You can get into the thenar eminence. You can even get down in between the metacarpals to where those intrinsic muscles are. In terms of ligaments and fascia, I have a really interesting case right now as patient with a partial hand amputation. He lost digits three, four, and five. He has his metacarpals, full metacarpals, but he's having a tremendous amount of like kind of fascial tension and ligamentous tension in between his metacarpals. And he feels a lot of cramping between those metacarpals. And I've been able to really use the tools to get in those little spots and give him a lot of relief. And it's really reduced his phantom kind of post-traumatic pain and the cramping that he had been having. So I know that's a really you know, unique case, but I think it's a great way to show how we can kind of think outside the box with those patients and using some of these tools. I think you make a good point that we as therapists have to save our hands. And I think <laughs> that has definitely been a plus to some of these smaller tools or just handheld tools, not putting your whole having to put your whole body into a hamstring with one of these things, but (laughs) something that you can utilize in a hand at the wrist, smaller joints to save our hands so that we can continue to practice. So I think that's, that's a really good point. I'm just going to throw this out there too. One place that I worked actually fabricated their own tools out of orthoplasts. So why does that not surprise me about a hand therapist? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the split, then you can make it be whatever you want it to be. Um, right. So I have done that already. And, you know, if I didn't have something in the clinic that was suited for what I wanted, I just kind of pulled out a piece of scrap split material, made it what I wanted. And there I went. <laughs> so that's a, another way to, to get some tools on your own. <laughs> now, do you find Jill that the, the patient that you explained in the case Was it uncomfortable for them? So sometimes I know, depending upon how deep you need to dig in there, it can be uncomfortable for them. Have you experienced that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when we're doing any type of manual therapy, whether it be soft tissue mobilization, instrument-assisted soft 
tissue mobilization, scar mobilization, stretching, there may be an element of discomfort that comes with it. And that's something I had a conversation with the patient ahead of time. I explained the type of you know, sensation that he may experience from the treatment. We started off with a very gentle use of the tool and then collaborated together on what he felt. And I'm going to steal a phrase that Hannah Gift had told me back in the day, or I'd heard her speak about, which is sore, but safe. So I talked to my patients about, okay, does this feel sore, but safe? And they'll say, oh yeah, no, it's sore, but it feels safe. It feels like, you know, this is something I can tolerate. And so, you know, the short answer to that is, yes, sometimes there is a level of discomfort. It's not always a pleasant experience, but when he leaves the clinic, he has significant relief. He can go and have a higher quality of life, do the activities that are meaningful to him. So, you know, 10 minutes of something that's not super pleasant, but comes with maybe some fun conversation to try to take the edge off. you know, then allows him to have, you know, the ability to enjoy his day, to do the things that really bring him joy, bring him meaning. And he considers that a good trade-off. But there have been times where I have tried this treatment with patients and within the first minute, they're like, no, I don't like this. This is very uncomfortable. I don't care for it. And at that point, we stop the treatment and we go on to try something different. So it's not for everybody, just like a lot of, you know, variety of modalities or treatment techniques. Sometimes patients just don't tolerate it as well. Shall we move on to another one? Because we have a bunch of tools that we discuss. <laughs> um, just kind of giving a little overview of, of what's out there. Now, blood flow restriction. That is something that I am not super familiar with. I know Kara had said she was a little bit, but can you tell us a little bit more about that? And what kind of clinical situations would you use that in or diagnoses? Sure. So blood flow restriction is something that dates you know, very far back to history. We started seeing it in modern day as a tool that people were using you know, in the gym, those who were, you know, weight training in high performing athletes. And then we saw a transition in the research to see it coming around to be used in the application in healthcare and specifically in physical and now in occupational therapy. So not to go into too much detail, because we could probably talk a long time about it, but basically what you're doing is you're, you're partially restricting the inflow, the arterial inflow, and you're completely restricting any type of venous outflow. And what that does, it restricts those things in the working muscles while you're doing exercises. So while you're doing activities with the patient in the clinic, and what that does is it forces the muscle to work harder. It increases the protein synthesis to the muscle cells. And that helps kind of, I almost want to say kind of help kind of speeds up, not speeds up, but really promotes a kind of advanced environment for muscle growth and repair. So it is a good technique to use when you're trying to increase strength and hypertrophy, but a patient can't really tolerate the levels of resistance or the demands on their joints that would be necessary to increase strength and hypertrophy because you're essentially able to use lower resistance levels, but still evoke that same muscle building response. Yeah. I think some of the first articles I saw when it was 
moving into the rehab arena was post-fracture, whether it was lower extremity or even I think some of the articles I saw in the upper extremity were on, we're looking at scaphoid fractures and primary, as you mentioned in athletes. So if they're not able to perform their regular weight lifting activities because they have a scaphoid fracture, but they want to prevent this atrophy that we all know happens when you're immobilized or after surgery or whatever, but you can do so in a safe environment by applying these principles and utilizing blood for restriction. Yeah, absolutely. And I had a case exactly like that. It was a high school senior athlete. He had a scaphoid fracture that had to be immobilized much longer than normal due to delayed healing. He had already kind of signed a you know scholarship offer to go to college. So there was a lot of kind of anxiety and stress and pressure about being able to be ready for summer workouts. And so we were able to use blood flow restriction as a way to, you know, help work on muscle growth, regaining strength without putting too many demands on his wrist. Cause he was still having some discomfort and pain with too much excessive weight bearing with it. You know, when he was trying to get in the gym, he was really just kind of struggling So we were able to use BFR in the clinic, successfully help him gain some strength back. And then when his wrist, when his scaphoid, when all those joints were ready for that level of resistance, were ready for that level of demand, his muscles were ready to kind of join in that fight, you know, just kind of join in that that mission and get him ready to go to college. Jill, can you explain the process? So, or like explain to our listeners like start to finish, like how you would set up a session, like where you're putting the cuff or even explain like the system, like what did it, when people hear <laughs> blood pressure restriction, what does that mean? Like, is it just a simple blood pressure cuff that you're putting around their arm or, or extremity or whatever? Can you explain that and how you might have utilized it and what sort of interventions you do in the setting of blood flow restriction? Absolutely. So there's a couple of different versions of the equipment. Some of the ones that people are using who are maybe in the gym is kind of, I almost described it as like a, the compression levels are already set. You just kind of put it on yourself and you go about your workout. What I like to use in the clinic are almost like you said, Kara, they kind of resemble blood pressure cuffs or a pneumatic pump, which you can inflate to a certain pressure level. And what I'll do with patients is determine what's called maximum occlusion level first. So I inflate the cuff while monitoring arterial pulse with a Doppler until we establish pulselessness. And that's my max occlusion rate. And then I deflate the cuff until I get to a certain percentage of that max occlusion rate. And therapeutic values, research varies, but can be anywhere between 40 to 60% just to be on the Air on the side of caution with that. So I'll usually start at about 40% with the patients. Once the cuff is inflated and you've occluded to the percentage of, of your choice, the patient can then go through, you know, a strengthening program that you've designed. And you start with really low resistance levels. So for example, if I had a patient, I had a patient who had Tommy John surgery. So, you know, obviously we don't want to do a whole lot of demand on the elbow or on the 
forearm muscles as they originate in the elbow. So I had him work with, you know, two and three pound wrist weights. I had him doing five pound kettlebell carries to work on just stabilization, but he felt, you know, and he described it as feeling like he was doing this really intense workout. So he was getting fatigued. Usually we start at a kind of high rep level and work our way down, or sometimes I'll just encourage my patients to work to a mild fatigue and then take a rest and then do anywhere between four to five sets. But especially in my athletic patients, my really active patients, even my kind of weekend warriors, I'll tell them, go ahead, work to a little fatigue, you know, as long as you feel like it's safe for you and you're establishing and recognizing when the fatigue starts and go ahead and work like that. And generally we'll work anywhere between 15 and 30 minutes, depending on how the patient's tolerating it. They may get some changes in the skin coloration. We may see some you know, the veins may become more prominent. And then once they're finished with the activities, we deflate the cuff. And this is the coolest part about BFR is because we are restricting the venous outflow, that's what carries the lactic acid and waste. So we're not getting that massive lactic acid or waste dumping that you get when you do a workout. So it's almost like an instant recovery. Patients take the cuff off, they move their arm a few times, reestablish the blood flow back into the arm, and they leave therapy. And they don't experience that post-workout like crud that we all kind of experience, the one where you can't get up the next morning and like you can't walk up the stairs after leg day. <laughs> So then they're coming back for their second visit of the week and they feel really good. They're not coming back and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, I was so sore. My muscles are so sore. And so it really allows you to progress that rehab forward, especially when patients are eager to get back into a level of activity, a level of sports or rehab program, or even a patient who's just eager to get back to mow their lawn or get back to gardening. And I understand, well, first off, thank you for that great explanation. (laughs) I think our listeners will really appreciate that as kind of a, if they aren't familiar with it, but I understand you're presenting on this at the (laughs) annual meeting this fall. Is that right? It is. It is a little plug there. Yeah. A preview of what's to come. Yeah. And to kind of go along with this year's theme, I have told a physical therapist in my clinic, who is the one who really introduced me to blood flow restriction and asked him to join me in the presentation. And I'm super excited. We're going to be doing a two hour presentation on both the science behind blood flow restriction, but also its application in hand and upper extremity. So my hope is that everyone leaves super excited and ready to utilize it in their clinics. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to add that to my list of, of courses that I want to sit in on. There's going to be a demo and everything. Oh, (laughs) Oh, very cool. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. So another one that you mentioned was dry needling. And I know that when people hear that, sometimes they, they get a little, little anxious one about just the word needle, but two, I think some of the thoughts behind it and even some of the restrictions that there are for, for therapists as a a PT, I I hear more of that from OTs. Can you speak to your experience with dry needling and kind of what's happening in the realm of 
maybe from the OT standpoint and how this is being utilized in hand and upper extremity therapy? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. From an occupational therapy standpoint, you know, dry needling kind of broke into the field. There were some courses that, you know, came out and we all started taking the courses. We all started getting super excited. Now I'm in the state of Maryland, so I can only speak on what happened here in terms of the guidelines. And so everyone started dry needling. I was doing it in my clinic. I felt like I was choosing to use the intervention in a way that was effective and safe. And I was getting some good results. And then I understand the PT and OT board's viewpoints here where they said, okay, hold on everybody. Let's get some guidelines in place so that we're all on the same page and that we're ensuring that we are doing our due diligence and using evidence-based practice with our patients. So I know that state by state, some OT boards have established guidelines and some OT boards are still working on them. So Maryland is one of the boards that is still working on it. So if anyone's on the Maryland OT board out there, let's do this. (laughs) But I did find that it was helpful. I learned the method by which you insert the needle into a myofascial trigger point and leave the needle in to gradually and slowly decompress the trigger point. But I'm aware that currently there's some different techniques out there, one by which you piston the needle in and out of a trigger point. And there's ones also where you can attach electrodes as a way to help with trigger point release with the dry needling. But I I did, I enjoyed using it. I thought it was a great way to be able to get to smaller muscles that normally you might not be able to get to maybe with your hands or, or even with your tools. Obviously in the hands, some of the fascia is a little thick, so that was a little tough. So the forearm was a great location. I've seen some really great work out there by some of my fellow education division members about using it for lateral epicondylitis with great success. And so hopefully I would personally like to be using them, but if you're in a state, you should definitely be looking up to see if what your current practice guidelines are. Did you ever find that your patients were apprehensive when you told them about it or were they coming to you saying, Hey, I want, I want to try this. I want to do this. So when I started doing it, it was nothing but apprehension because there was not a whole lot out there for the consumer. And now we see there's a, it's a lot more press showing dry needling that the person, the patient can see. So they're coming into the clinics now and they've heard that their friends have had it, or they've seen it in the news or in an article. So yes, there was a tremendous amount of apprehension. And oftentimes I had to show them the needles, talk to them about that. They really were thin acupuncture style needles that would not necessarily it wouldn't be too, you know, it's not these big, thick needles. And I would offer oftentimes to insert one needle into a spot that I knew probably wouldn't be too painful. So I wouldn't necessarily insert into the actual trigger point just to give them a chance to kind of see how it felt. And I felt that that really helped with the apprehension. And there were some patients that were so like, no, this is not for me. (laughs) And that was perfectly fine. But I definitely had some patients that were like, I'm tried so many different things and nothing's really worked for me. And I'm definitely willing to give this to try. I myself don't love dry needling on my own 
you know, as a patient, you know, when I physical therapist have done it for me. So I think that's good to recognize that it's, it's definitely not for everybody, but yes, definitely met with a tremendous amount of apprehension when, when it first kind of came out, but I'm excited to see now that patients are showing up to our clinic, requesting it, getting excited about it. And they've heard great things about it. They've had friends who have had great results. And so it's nice that the community is kind of coming around this idea about dry needling. So I know you had mentioned some of the other members in the ed division have done it for lateral epicondylitis, but in your experience, when you were doing it, what diagnoses or what were you looking to get out of it by using that dry needling approach? Yeah. So I think when we do an evaluation of a patient and they're having some sort of, you know, soft tissue pathology, whether it be a tendonitis, tendinosis, muscle issue, and you're palpating along, and you know that that when you hit that point, right, you're palpating along a muscle and the patient goes, oh, ouch, yeah, that's the spot. You know, it's great that you're able to really insert a needle into that trigger point and really work to kind of relax and increase blood flow to that area. So, you know, the most common areas that I would use it for, obviously, were the forearm. Those muscles are nice and robust. Their fascia is very easy to kind of get through with the needles. And so lateral epicondylitis was always a good one. And I'll admit, I really liked when I had a patient who was agreeable to it, I really liked using it with my patients who had like tremendous intrinsic tightness. So getting down into those intrinsic muscles to try to stimulate blood flow to them and help kind of just relax and release those muscles. I usually used it when we felt like the stretching, the exercises just kind of weren't kind of cutting it on their own. So I definitely tried that a few times. I had mixed results, but I definitely had a few good results coming out of it. So I liked giving it a try for that. So that was a unique way that I did use it. So I would say the next thing that is probably the most well-known out of all of them is just the different uses for taping. So there's many different types of tape out there. What do you use in your clinic as far as taping different types? What are you using? Where are you putting it? What what are you trying to get with it? And we all know there's all different courses out there in regards to taping, but what are your thoughts? I do. I really enjoy taping as something that you could not only apply to the patient before they leave your clinic to help continue the progress that you're making, but also applying it within the clinic. So I'm familiar with kind of grouping taping into two different categories. You have your more flexible athletic waterproof taping, right? That's the tape that we're familiar with. It has the wave design often used with athletes. We've seen it in the Olympics a bunch of times, but then we also have that firmer supportive taping. And so I use primarily the flexible athletic taping. It's well-received amongst patients. It's more comfortable for them. And so I'll use it for a variety of different reasons. Actually, a great way that I used it earlier this week, I have a patient who I'm suspecting might have a little DRUJ instability and he is a mechanic. And so he is currently working and he was concerned that while he was working, that he was getting a lot of popping in his wrist. And he said, I feel like my bone is moving and then snapping back. And so I did an examination and indeed saw some, the ulna kind of 
subluxing and moving in a way that I didn't think was super helpful for the patient. And he's since going off to see his doctor to get a more thorough evaluation. But what we needed to do is we need to get him safe and supported to get back home. So I kind of showed him the two different styles of taping. I put both on him to just let him see how they felt. And he was really honest with me. He's like, look, that firmer tape, I'm not going to be able to work with that on. It's just too thick. And so we did, we used so that even though the flexible athletic style taping is essentially that you can use it in a way that still provides stability and support to joints. So I did kind of a, you know, an anchor at the wrist, gave them a big pull to get that onus set where it needed to be and anchored it on the other side. And I actually did a second piece just to add to that stability. And he was extremely happy. He was able to work for the rest of the day, came back for his next visit and told me he had very little to no popping, nothing super significant. So that's one good example. Another unique way that I really enjoy using the flexible athletic taping is for lymphatic drainage in people who are experiencing edema. I think it's a little underrated and especially like those big edematous hands that come to you and they've been in a cast or they're wearing this orthotic and just not able to elevate and do as much moving. They don't have as much hand range of motion. So they come in and they have that swollen hand and, you know, applying the tape can really help to lift the skin up and take pressure off of our lymphatic systems. Remember our lymphatic systems, that body's drainage system, you take the pressure off the lymphatic system. Those lymphatic vessels are nice and open. They have lots of room and they're just going to pull that fluid right out. And then patient goes home with that and wears it for a few days, comes back to see you and hopefully has a lot less swelling and you can still do you know, active range of motion and elevation to help assist with that. So I think those are two of the more kind of out of the box thinking that I use taping for. I think we're all familiar with some of the more common things. So it's kind of fun to highlight ways you might not have thought or ways you, you knew we could use it. But those two, I found, you know, I really, especially lymphatic drainage, I love using it for that. Yeah. So the more rigid tape, I've had success using it. So if you have anybody that has radial nerve wrist drop and they're starting to get motion back, I will tape their extensors from the tip of the dorsal aspect of the fingertip all the way back. And, you know, we make that, that dorsal radial nerve splint, but this is once they start to get that motion back, I use that taping instead of the splint. And I've had patients that have loved that the tape that has a little bit more of like neoprene in it. And it just gives enough of a pull. They can bend into flexion for their fist, but then that tape will kind of spring load them back a little bit into extension to get increased function when they're a little too good for a a radial nerve splint, but they still need something else. So that's a, that's a different intervention for that more rigid tape. Yeah. I love that. I also, another, like the rigid tape. I use the brand, the Luco tape. That's that brown tape. It has very little to no stretch on it. I know I just kind of called out that brand, Um, but, uh, (laughs) but I love to use it. So, you know, we see our patients, they have hand and, and, you know, a lot of times wrist or elbow injuries, but, you know, a lot of research and a lot, like I think it, two years ago at the meeting, they talked a lot about the proximal component of distal injuries. And so I always look at posture and 
you know, we live in an age where we have these rounded shoulders. So I actually enjoy using that kind of firmer tape for postural correction to help patients who might be struggling with some shoulder and scapular pain that could be you know, secondary to their injury. It's something easy to apply. They can wear it and still wear their clothes over top without much difficulty. It's waterproof. So that's usually a pretty easy one to put on. And it does make a big difference to help kind of decrease that tension and that pain that could come through there, through that periscapular region, and then radiate, you know, cause radiating pain down to the hand. So I know we've talked about several different tools that might be in your toolbox, but I think one of the things that you said, and maybe about several of these modalities, or you've talked about what your patients have said, they might not like dry needling, or they might not like the feeling of instrument assisted. Do you stop at that point and try something different? Or do you continue that on? How do you make that clinical decision of, hey, this isn't working or my patient doesn't like this? Yeah, that's always a tough call, right? And so patients are like, oh, that's weird. They give you sometimes vague feedback and you're like, well, is it okay? And they're like, oh, I'll just, just keep going, just keep going. And so <laughs> I think really making sure that you're getting that strong communication with your patient. I often ask a lot to kind of grade their levels of comfort. You know, I'm like, well, how uncomfortable are you with this on a zero to 10 scale? 10 meaning if we were good friends, you would have told me to stop a long time ago. Um, (laughs) And then it kind of helps give you some stronger feedback from your patient. I'll never be one to kind of give up after the first time, you know, the first time you introduce a new treatment to a patient, it's the first time that they're feeling anything like that. So it's the same way when you do e-stem, right? Tell the patient, it'll feel like pins and needles and automatically they're kind of guarded, they're nervous, their sensory system is kind of parasympathetic nervous systems all on guard. And so I'll usually stop the treatment that day if I notice that it's just not being well-received and it's not going to be therapeutic for that day, but then the next time they come in, I'll talk to them about it. Hey, you know, we tried instrument assisted soft tissue work. You look like it didn't really go over so well. It was really uncomfortable for you and it wasn't beneficial for you, but now that you've kind of gotten a feel for what it feels like, do you want to try it again today? And I want to try to use a different tool. So I'll change something about it to maybe help ease their minds. Like, Hey, that last tool had a little bit of a firmer edge. This tool has a rounder edge. How about we try this? Or how about we try, I'll do some soft tissue work prior to using the tool. And I'll talk to them about ways I could adapt the treatment and then kind of see how they feel about it then. But usually give it a second try now that they've had a chance to get that kind of sensory introduction as to what it might feel like. And then if it still doesn't go well, that second treatment, then it's a good time to move on. So I think we'd be remiss if we didn't tie this into an episode that we had a couple of episodes ago, I guess, on our discussion of knowledge translation. Because I think a lot of times some of these new tools that we're hearing, these as you said earlier, these buzz phrases, these buzz tools that we're starting to see people utilizing and is there evidence for them? We're utilizing them in the clinic. We might be seeing results. Is it placebo? Is it not? How do we ensure that we are utilizing best practice with some of these tools 
and implementing them in an appropriate manner. Yeah, I think that's always something when new techniques come out, you know, it's exciting, it's new. And I think as hand and upper extremity therapists, we do, we get super excited about those type of things. And it is important as a therapist to do your due diligence and make sure that number one, there's evidence behind it. Number two, that the evidence, the, the anatomy, the kind of biological component matches, like it makes sense, right? And so when you're listening and you're reading through the articles, when you're reading through some of the materials that you're seeing, does it make sense to you? Like would instrument-assisted soft tissue work create myofascial release and how? You know, when I first heard about blood flow restriction, I was like, well, how does like restricting blood flow actually help your muscles? That doesn't make sense. But once I dug deeper into it and read through the research, and then obviously number three, we should be, you know, taking courses and getting education prior to really getting deep into the implementation of these things. So for example, I took the dry needling course. And even when I came back, I chose to, you know, practice on my fellow coworkers especially on areas that I knew would be more sensitive, more difficult to reach so that they could give me feedback so that when I was implementing it on patients, I felt very comfortable and I felt like I was using best practices. Instrument-assisted soft tissue massage. When it first kind of came out, there were a lot of really big name products that showed up and these big courses, you know, two and three day long courses. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't really see a lot about the hand and upper extremity right now. So I want to wait and I want to sit on this and I wasn't using it. And then when I started seeing courses that were a little bit more specific to my practice area, that's when I dug deeper into it, as opposed to taking a course that, you know, would offer me the basics, but not make me feel comfortable translating it over to my specific practice area. And then the same thing with BFR, because I think that's kind of the, I hate to say the newest, but the one where the research is probably the most recent as it applies to therapy. You know, there's still a lot of emerging things out there. So I'm not just putting blood flow restriction cuffs on every patient I have. I'm (laughs) really making sure that I'm looking at how it's being used. A lot of the research is specific to lower extremity injuries, but I'm still looking at, you know, okay, an ACL repair. All right. What type of restrictions, what type of precautions does an ACL repair need? What type of upper extremity injury is similar? What type of structures in the upper extremity require that same amount of precautions? And then really thinking deeply, again, going back to the anatomy about those type of things. So I would say, try not to kind of put on your rose colored goggles and get excited and be ready to like, yes, I want to try all these fun new things, but rather, you know, do your due diligence. And if you're still after having looked through the research, the materials, if you've seen it on social media and you're still like, ah, I still feel like this is a little out of my comfort zone. It is perfectly fine as a therapist, whether you've been in practice for two years or 20 years to say, you know, I just don't think this is a tool that's meant for my toolbox and that's okay. Well, and I think it's okay to try them and make that decision later too. And I think that comes with 
experience, trying it with your patients, seeing what works with say you've got a distal radius fracture status post, you know, a surgical reduction, whatever. And you try X, Y, and Z modalities on them or interventions or, or whatever. And they work and you try them on the next patient and they don't work. Like, don't just throw it out the window. You might need to try it on the next patient, or you might try it on 10 and go, yeah, this isn't working. And, and you try something different. Yeah. I mean, how many times have we been in the clinic and you come up with this really cool idea for regaining thumb motion and you try it with one patient and they love it. And you try it with another patient and they like, can't figure it out. And they're having trouble like, oh my gosh, like wrist proprioception activities. And I think about like the true balance, I'll give one patient the true balance. That's that thing with the little discs that you have to get lined up. And I'll have a patient, they'll be like, oh yeah, oh, this is great. I'm getting it. And I have another patient that's like, I don't know how to do this. This is just, <laughs> you know, and so the same, you know, Kara kind of ties into that same goes applies for these things. Right. And so it's not a one size fits every diagnosis. And, and that's, I think that's the reason why we have a toolbox as therapists so that we have different drawers in our toolbox that we can pull out of and to try. And to continue learning about them. And I think that kind of going into the knowledge translation too of researching them and seeing what, if, like you said, you wanted to see these implemented in diagnoses that you were treating and maybe they were originally used for athletes or post lower extremity injuries, but maybe you weren't seeing it for the upper extremity and then slowly it was coming and then maybe more and more research was being published that you were able to not generalize, but be more specific to your what's in front of you. Yeah, exactly. And having other therapists that you network with who, you know, they don't have to be hand and upper extremity therapists, for example, you know, the physical therapist in my clinic, you know, he's a great resource to me and I'll sit down with them and I'm like, Hey, I've got this patient. And I think BFR would be a good resource, but I'm really still trying to process through the science behind the application and this and that. And we'll sit and dig deeper into it. And he'll talk about cases that he's used that he thinks are similar to what my goals and what my treatment goals would be. And we try to connect the two together. So again, bringing that collaboration in and, you know, it's a great resource to have the other clinicians who can, I can go to and ask questions to who have been using some of these techniques longer than me. That's great. Well, I know we look forward to sitting in on your breakout session (laughs) this fall and hearing more about this. So we really appreciate you taking the time to discuss several different interventions with us this evening. And we look forward to hearing more. I just want to also put in there that at this year's annual meeting, I believe there's going to be something on dry needling as well. Am I correct? Or yes. yes. So. <laughs> so look for that one too at our annual meeting in Washington, DC. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys. I had a great time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and continue offering valuable, relevant content. 
You've been listening to Hands in Motion, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast. Thank you.